This morning's scriptural reading is coming from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. So please uh, stand with me, if you would, while we hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Lord, <clears throat> it's hard to read a passage like that without wanting to, to jump for joy. I mean, we are sinners and we stand before you in, in deserving judgment. But we thank you, Lord, that we are kept secure by the love of Christ and that nothing can separate us from him, from you. Lord, bring your word to us this morning. I pray that your spirit would attend to us, that we will listen diligently, and that your word would go forth powerful and mighty. We thank you for this time together. In the name of Christ, amen. So over the next few weeks, we're going to have some changes in our preaching schedule. Uh, next week, uh, Steve Donahue will be preaching because this week I'll be on study leave where I'll be preparing some lectures for a, a seminary in uh, Cartagena, Colombia. Um, and I'll give those lectures the last week of July, and those will kind of be four hours a day uh, for the five days of that last week in July week, and I'll be at the coop doing those things. So if you have things you like to do at the coop um, during the, uh, probably the morning, uh, those mornings, we should talk about that for that last week, if there are some activities planned there, because I plan on being there holed up with the camera and with, uh, with the microphone, broadcasting via Zoom uh, the seminary classes. So we just need to talk about that if some of you have some activities that you do there that uh, might interfere with that. Uh, and then the week, because I'll be doing that that week, then the week afterwards, uh, John Kilbane, he'll be preaching that week. So we have some different folks stepping in. I'm so glad that we have, uh, that all of our elders are apt to teach, as the scripture says. And, uh, and I'm grateful that we've got, uh, you know, the, the last two elders I just mentioned both have degrees from seminary. That's just such a blessing to have in our congregation. Um, 
As we look now at the, at the scriptures, we are in Romans chapter 8. We will be looking at the last section of Romans chapter 8 today, but we won't, this isn't our last sermon in Romans chapter 8. I, I know you were thinking it might be since we read to the end. You might have felt that certain lightness in your spirit for just a moment, but no, don't, that's not true. We do have one more sermon after this uh, in Romans 8 where we're going to take a closer look at, uh, at, at verse 38 and 39, where Paul is speaking of angels and demons and things below and things above. Very clearly, he's speaking of the spiritual realm and that there are dangers that the church faced from the spiritual realm that he makes promises that Christ has made them more than conquerors over. So, uh, we'll finish up Romans 8 by looking at uh, the occult, essentially, and its attacks on the early church in Rome, and we'll look at some applications for today. But today, we're going to kind of work over that. We're not going to address that directly. We're going to look at everything else in the passage, and that'll set us up for looking at that in a couple of weeks and we're just going to walk step by step through these verses today. I made my second trip to Crabtree Falls with my uh, with Kim uh, just just uh, last Monday, and uh, it was beautiful to go there. How many of you have been to Crabtree Falls and hiked that? Yes, it's just beautiful. And so you see, just layer after layer after layer after layer about five different major uh, areas to view the falls, but at any spot where you're standing, I counted 13 waterfalls that I could see in, in one spot where I was standing. And, and Paul has done a bit of this work for us. Romans chapter 8 is like this giant pool of water at the, the top of a Crabtree Mountain. I don't know the name of, of what the mountain is there. And, and now flowing and cascading down is verses 31 and 32 and 33 and 34. And it would benefit us this morning just to, to take those verse by verse by verse and see how the, the enormous uh, beatific blessings from Romans chapter 8 just spill over into our lives and into our congregation as we look at verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Martin Luther was a man who was given to depression. He was given to grief and sadness. He was opposed by enemies uh, within the church. He was opposed by enemies outside the church. He was hampered by kidney stones. How many of you have had kidney stones? Yeah. Is, is that much fun? No, that's not much fun. And so he's got kidney stones. He's being attacked from within, attacked from without. He's under the, the pressures as the weight of the world feels like it's upon him. That if he falls and fails in ministry, the whole Protestant Reformation looks like it will buckle. And so he gets depressed once again, gets depressed. And his wife, Katie, she goes and she takes a, a dark cloth and drapes it over the front door and over the door of his 
study in that culture to drape a dark cloth over a doorway was to say that this house had experienced death. Well, then she puts on all black and goes about dressed in all black, what you would wear to a funeral. Martin Luther, even in his depressed state, looks up and noticed what's going on, and he says, what is it now, Katie? What is it that you are hiding from me? Who has died, whose death will once again take away my hope for living? Katie responded, God died. You blasphemer, he called out. How could you say that? She said, well, the way you're living, you act like he did. That was just the kind of sarcastic rebuke that energized a man like Martin Luther. He went in from this conversation to his desk and he took a knife and he carved into the top of his wooden desk, Vivit, which means he lives. Because if God is, is for us, if he lives, then who can be against us? If God has died, well then, it is very bad news. Paul uses a rhetorical device here in verse 31. What shall we say is used a total of eight times in the book of Romans. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 9 twice, including now chapter 8. He sets us up to look backwards, the then points backwards. What then shall we say to these things that I've just talked about? What are these things? Two things. Number one, that believers face great suffering in this world that will bring them to their knees and cause their prayers to be nothing but groaning and tears and fear and number two, along with that Christian is the interceding spirit and the interceding Christ praying with and in that believer. I said there were two things, but that's number one. The second thing is that around all of these circumstances, verse 28, that come against us, in all of these circumstances, God has a way of working it for our good and for His glory. Those are the two things that God that is asserted here that yes, you will be driven to your knees, you will be undone, you will be weak. You will be see your family torn apart. It's going to be bad, but Christ and the Holy Spirit are praying right along with you, even in the midst of your worst times. And what are they praying? 
whatever they are praying, it turns out that the answer to their prayer is that those who seek to demolish our souls, and we're going to find out later on in the text more of the identity of those, cannot fully and finally succeed. Paul's conclusion is that nothing can squash, nothing can stop the saving work of Jesus Christ in your life. That nothing can stop the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. That nothing can take away the Father's adopting, familial, drawing you close love in your life. And so the answer to the question, who can be against us? Is who cares? They don't have a chance. It's not going to work. It's not even fair. God's going to win. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? So, God has something for us so beautiful and precious and delightful. But will he give it to me? I mean, that's the question. Am I worthy? Have I done the right stuff? Am I, am I a Christian? Will he give it to me? I don't know. I don't know. That kind of question could perplex and bother us. Paul addresses this right here. Paul, remember the religious terrorist Paul. Paul the murderer Paul, that Paul. You got to know he struggled with this as well. And so this is his logic that we see working itself out here. And what is his logic? Okay. If God, when thinking about me and my predicament and the predicament of all sinners, did not withhold giving to me the most precious thing in the universe, the life of his own innocent son, the Lamb of God, then these other things heaven, rescue from troubles, healing, whatever these other things are that God promises us, those are lesser things than the greatest thing in the universe. So if God did not spare already giving to his elect the greatest thing in the universe, then most certainly he's going to be able to give all these lesser things to us because if I wasn't worthy to receive that, I'm, I'm a little more worthy to receive this stuff. It's lesser than Christ himself. So that means God will graciously, with Christ, give us all things. Now, that is a very important little phrase there, with Christ, because you can see that Jesus might be irritated by this whole arrangement. I mean, yeah, God, it's working out great for them, but I had to die. I had to do... go through the most suffering, not just the physical suffering, not just the emotional suffering, not just the separation from the inner Trinitarian delight 
that I was experiencing for an eternity until I passed through the birth canal of a woman and was in this... I mean, Jesus could be irritated by the whole process. He could be put out by everything he had to do to rescue us. But Paul says, no, he was not. Because it's not just the Father who's giving us these all things. It's not just the Father that's working all this out. It's Christ with him giving us all things. So the Son is delighted to keep giving. The Son doesn't have the attitude that we, I know no parents here have ever had this feeling, but I have, where you do stuff for your kids, you take them to Disney World, whatever it is, and then when they get there, "Ah, this isn't good enough, this isn't right. They start complaining And you start to think, why did I even do this in the first place? I know this has never happened to you guys. This is confession time for me. But this is not the way of the Lord. This may be the way of human authority figures. Because we do these nice things because we kind of have a little agreement we're trying to make. If I do these nice things, you're supposed to respect me and, and say nice things about me. And when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed. It's not a great system, but that's not the system that Christ is working from. That's not the logic of the Father and the Son. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We hear some legal language being used here. Are there any charges to bring against the elect? I mean, maybe God just might be nice and and just give people stuff, but that doesn't mean that legally speaking, they still should be condemned. Paul says, no. The recipients of the book of Romans can draw strength from the fact that God leads and oversees his people in all circumstances and and in the midst of the mistreatment that they faced in the church, in all of the cities where churches were planted. Here's what Luke wrote in Acts 4.28 about all the things that Herod, all the things that Pilate did, all the things that the Jewish and Roman rulers did that they were simply acting on whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Even the crucifixion of Jesus himself. This isn't fatalism, but it is a deep trust and appreciation and deference to God's wisdom in these matters. The Christians in the days of the Romans were charged with crimes against the emperor because they would not go into the 
cultic temples and offer up the incense offering and say that the emperor was curious, was Lord. They were charged with crimes against the state. And the punishment for those crimes was execution, not just of them, but their family. And even those charges and even those awful punishments, Paul says, God's the one who justifies. In the end, when you stand before the only judge who matters, what other people say about you won't stick. It's God and what he says about you is what finally and fully matters. Verse 33 says, it's the God is the one who justifies. That's the Father's work in Christ. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul has already affirmed that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's already made that clear in 8.1. He's asked the question, who is there to condemn to suggest the ridiculous idea that anyone or anything seeking to convict us of wrongdoing before God when we've been fully exonerated is a waste of time. But then, lest believers think that their freedom from condemnation and their freedom is just a thing of the past, he then says to us that Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, and who is now, now we're not talking about the past anymore, we're in the present, we're in the future, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So the love and the care for his people that marked the ministry of Christ on earth, it continues today. That's not back then. It's now. He continues his intercessory labors for the church in tandem with the Holy Spirit. Robert Murray McShane said about this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Oh, hallelujah. In those times of difficulty, 
of shame, of disaster. Be still and quiet before the Lord and see if you can hear the whispered prayer of Christ for you. Go into His Word. Read His Word. Find Jesus' prayers for His church in the book of John. Let those apply to your situation and know that Christ is still praying prayers like those over you, over His elect, over His church. Verse 35, who shall separate us from love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's look at those words that Paul uses there. They're important words. They talk about themes he's going to keep bringing up in the book of Romans. They're not chosen by random. They're words that mean something to his audience, and they go backwards in referencing the ministry of Christ, from which every word of the book of Romans is rooted. Tribulation is the same word that is used for suffering in Romans 5. Three, it means afflictions, it means troubles, it's associated with the gospel going forth into a culture. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 that you received the word in much tribulation, in much affliction, in much persecution. If tribulation implies a painful treatment from the outside of the church... Distress, then, the next word refers to what that affliction feels like, the way it emotionally strikes us. It pains us deeply. Persecution is mentioned next. It's a form of tribulation that causes the distress, and it can even be fatal. Paul uses the word several times in his writings, and it was a reality for the people of his day who proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord was treason in that culture. And yet it's the fundamental confession of a Christian. Seems like they could have chosen something easier as their slogan. Something that maybe didn't get them in as much trouble. Alas, that's never been the goal of Christianity. Famine is the next word. Famine was a constant threat in the Roman world. Much of Paul's ministry, as you read through his books, deal with the matter of the Jerusalem famine that was going on and him taking up collections to help the believers and unbelievers for that matter 
struggling in times of famine. The state would get involved in giving out food during a time like that. But often a despised minority like Christians would not be served. Nakedness could possibly be a reference to the shame of public exposure that would happen if you were taken by the Roman authorities and stripped and beaten publicly, taken and stripped and crucified. These were not theories. These were things that you saw when you walked around the streets. It also could refer to Jesus' own nakedness, his own suffering that he went through for you and for me. At the end of this section, we get a sudden quotation. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see that uh, it's kind of going along, and all of a sudden there's indentations, there's quotation marks that alert us that Paul quotes from Psalm 44, 22. This is the central verse, and if you know anything about Psalms, it's often not the first verse or the last verse, it's the middle verse that gives you the real theme of the psalm. And you'll do this little literary study to figure out what the middle verse is. Well, Paul does this for us. And this central verse that he quotes is verse 22 in Psalm 44. And it's a psalm that calls out to God for help because his faithful people are suffering persecution and God doesn't seem to be responding. Now, that doesn't seem like the right verse to quote there. It seems like you would want to quote a verse about where God's people called out for help and God responded, like Exodus chapter 1 maybe, where he hears the cries of his people in Egypt and then he responds. He hears their cries, but Paul goes the other direction. And he quotes this psalm that is lamenting. God, why are you taking so long? What point are you trying to make here? It's because Paul lives in the real world. It's because Paul isn't trying to sell you something. The fact is, is that there are roughly 90,000 Christians who die of persecution annually, nearly 250 per day. The reality is that those who name the name of Christ 
in the countries where the church is growing most rapidly, many of those churches are also undergoing great persecution. That it's all happening at the same time. It's all mixed up together. Suffering and growth. And so it's necessary for Paul then to address this reality. Because if it was just a matter of, well, yes, I'm suffering right now for what I believe, but if I dial it all right, if I, if I get everything dialed in perfect as far as what I say, what I do, how I pray, how much of the Bible a good person should be reading, how much money I should be giving, what, what, what kind of church I'm going to, what my theology is, okay, and we get all the dials that we are given in this very marketing-given culture. They'll sell you more dials as well. And if we get all that dialed in just right, then I won't be suffering. And to that, I respond. Oh, no, I can't use that word. I'm preaching. But that's wrong. That's incorrect. That's not right. That's a lie from Satan. The Apostle Paul didn't figure out how to live the Christian life where he didn't suffer. And I have a feeling that he struggled with that. As a matter of fact, he talked about it very clearly in 2 Corinthians, where he said, you know, if I wanted to quit suffering, I could just quit preaching Christ and Him crucified. Hmm. And he considers that, and he has a conversation about that in the, in the text. There is a way that Christians in this culture can figure out ways to live where we're able to live out our faith and nobody ever looks at us sideways. There, is, there are ways to do that. I simply do not recommend them. Because something will die inside of you. And so it's necessary that Paul says to the Christians in Rome, no, in all these things that I've been talking about, and in all these things I'm about to talk about, verse 37 We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'll get into, in my next sermon, working through those words and what those words are talking about. But generally speaking, it's talking about things that we don't talk about in America. But we'll talk about them here in the coming week. John Chrysostom earned the nickname of Golden Mouth. He was uh, an eloquent preacher in 
around 347 to 400 AD. But he was not loved by the Roman government the same way he was loved by the church. In fact, the emperor wanted to banish him if he remained a Christian and wanted to keep preaching and banishment in those days meant they sent you out into the desert to die. Chrysostom's reply to the emperor helps us to understand this Romans 8 kind of faith that God calls us to. The emperor said, I will banish you. And Chrysostom's reply was, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. The emperor said, I will take away everything you own. No, you can't, said Chrysostom, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. I will drive you away from all men in your family and you will have no friends left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. That's it. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8. That once we are assured of the love of God in Christ, once we grasp that God is for us, that the Spirit of God is indwelling us, that God is using whatever suffering comes our way to make us more like Jesus, and once we know that the Spirit and the Son are interceding and praying for us, then we get liberated. We get set free from the promises and the threats of this world. We experience a freedom that no one else can offer us. Freedom from the anxiety and fear of their threats and even fears from our, even the the threats that we threaten ourselves with. We get set free from that too because height nor depth nor anything else in creation, you're a part of creation. You're a part of creation. I can't even separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's great news. May God grant His church courage and encouragement based on the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, grant your church now fresh faith to follow you into places of obedience and love and freedom that the world, the devil, and maybe even our own flesh says we don't deserve and that we can't have. And so why should you even try? Let, Holy Spirit, your power, your great and marvelous power, work in us. that we might repent and believe. And then when faced with the limits of our own faith, that we would cry out to the Spirit and the Son who are praying for us, Lord, help my unbelief. And knowing that the Spirit and the Son pray, we then rise and walk forward in the freedom that only a Son of God can have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen. We now come to the Lord's